There are Bibles as you walk in. If you need one, please feel free to grab it. The text is also in your bulletin. And you're welcome if you'd like to use your phones, whatever medium you'd like to use to be able to have God's Word in front of you. Please do take advantage of the tremendous resource we have to be able to read God's Word even outside of corporate worship, which we've been able to do since Gutenberg invented the printing press. It's amazing for 500 years we've had access to God's Word, yet how seldom we actually read it. And one of the privileges we have in gathered worship is to read it together. This summer, we're in a series on the Psalms. It's called the Songs of Jesus. They were the choruses, the worship songs that Jesus himself, as it were, worship songs, as it were, that he would have read. And so there is a devotional that we have prepared for you to take you through every psalm we're going to look at this summer. In this devotional guide, which you'll find on the table as you leave, please, if you don't yet have one of these, please grab one for you or your family. And so if you would... Would you give your attention now to the reading of God's Word? A reading from Psalm 6. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This summer, we are looking at the Psalms. And as I said earlier, the Psalms are the songs of Jesus. They are his hymn book. And the Psalms are replete with the full range of human emotion that you and I experience. So we're going to look at them through the five emotions this summer. And those five emotions are last week. What did we see last week? What did we see last week? Meditation, number one. Number two, this week, repentance. Number three, sorrow. Number four, petition. And number five, adoration or thanksgiving. Those are the cycles of emotions that you see all throughout the course of the Psalms. And they're important for us because last week or last series, we talked about the nature of the church. We talked about how the church was a place to be God's people. It was a series that was relatively heady. It was relatively things of the mind. But the Psalms are important for us because they take us not to the heights of the mind. Not, they don't push you intellectually. They actually go to the depth of your heart. And they push you emotionally. Because many of God's people are frankly very emotionally repressed. Hmm? They are not real sure what to do with their emotions. So, let's take Psalm 6 as a case study this morning and let's look at it. Lower your eyes to verse 6, for example. 
Look at verse 6. It says, very boldly, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. Okay, what do you do with that? What do you do with your tears? This psalm shows us. What does this psalm show us? It shows us that you and I have a trail of tears. The first principle this psalm shows us, it comes out of verses 6 and 7. You should expect tears. Please hear me. There is a myth about the Christian life that you and I are very susceptible to, and the myth goes like this. That when you know your need of salvation, when you know that you've sinned, when you know that you're broken, when you know that you yearn for a right relationship with God, you know that you were created for that right relationship, you long for it. It's like, you know this if you're a teenager because teenagers just tell their parents, I'm going out. Well, where are you going? I don't know. I'm just going out because they want to be with their friends. We were made for relationship. But the perfect relationship you share is with Christ who made you. And you know this. When you begin to know it, you know that. And some of you who have been in church all your life also know that when you, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, what happens? Well, you know that God has called you since before the dawn of time in his electing love. You know that the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, has regenerated your heart, has made you new, has given you the ability to believe. And you believe and you place your faith in Jesus. And then you young theologians, you also know what after that happens. You know that the Lord not only opens your heart to believe, but he actually justifies you before his Father so that when the Father in heaven sees you, he sees the perfect spotlessness of his Son. You are justified in his sight. Not only that, but you know that you've been adopted so that everything Jesus has now is yours. Everything that Jesus has becomes yours. And not only that, but you know that if you are justified, you will be sanctified. Your life will become more holy. And if your life becomes more holy, what? You begin to grow in your joy until your joy is consummated in glory and you're glorified. You can go through the entire order of salvation. You can know everything about your life and if you, about how the Christian life works. But if you're not careful, you begin to believe this myth. If I know enough theology, if I obey God's commands, if I'm a good Christian boy or good Christian girl, then my life is going to be amazingly sweet and amazingly, amazingly happy. And then you find yourself on your bed weeping tears and moaning. And is it any wonder why children are leaving the church? We've said to them that if you just know enough theology, if you just know how this Christian life works, if you just study the Bible, if you just go to church, if you just have a quiet time, then you will never, as John of the Cross said, have a dark night of the soul. Friends, I'm here to tell you that that is a lie. And you know it from your own experience. And it's freeing to hear somebody say it out loud. There's something in your heart that just says, yes, that's so true. Why? Because you know it. The gospel tells us that even though this incredible work has happened in our hearts, the one thing that you can expect out of the Christian life, although you may have incredible highs and feel very close to Jesus, you can expect, first of all, David shows us tears. That's what verses 6 and 7 teach us. 
That's the principle. You can expect tears in the Christian life. Brene Brown, some of you know, is a very famous blogger. She's a very famous author. She became a Christian in midlife. She, when she was about 40, she began to read all these blogs and began all, all these books about midlife crises. And all the books began to tell, many of the books began to say, you need to go get in touch with your spiritual side. And so Brene Brown did what the books told her to do. And so she goes to church. And what happened? She was converted. It's beautiful. And Brene Brown writes, I thought that the church would be an epidural. That is, I thought it would numb my pain. And instead, Brene Brown very perceptively, said, very perceptively said, the church is not an epidural. The church is more like a midwife for us. It just stands beside us, and it tells us, Brene, push. There are two reactions we typically have to our tears. There are two reactions. For some of us who grew up in homes where we repressed our emotions, we tend to ignore our tears. We tend to buck up. That's not what a good Christian does. And we exhaust ourselves on two fronts. Number one, we begin to repress our emotions, repress our sadness. And when that happens, we begin to have this incredible tension that's unhealthy. You're pushing down these emotions all the time. And even though you have these amazing, these incredibly powerful emotions, you can't express them. You grew up in a home that tamped them down. And so when you come to church, what do you do? You just smile and you perform and you pretend everything is okay. And you highlight an extra verse in your Bible. You try to force yourself to be happy, but it wears you out. Number one, because you're not being honest. And number two, it's because you're exhausting yourself by your performance. Do you see that happening in your life? On the other hand, some of you say, no, I've read the Psalms before. I love the Psalms. And you allow your emotions to become, you just vent them. And your emotions, though it's healthy for you to begin to express them, you begin to just wallow in them and you linger in them. And you linger in them so much that your godly emotions begin to become infected and they lead to self-pity. And then you begin to wallow and you begin to kind of flagellate or punish yourself, saying, Lord, I am so sorrowful. Look at all the injustice in the world. Look at the darkness of my own heart. Look at the injustice to my neighbor. And you begin a kind of self-punishment. Aren't I suffering enough for you, Jesus? Don't you see how much I'm suffering? And you begin, just like the one who tamps down their emotions, you begin to say to God, oh God, I'm performing for you. I'm suffering for you. Don't you see me? Won't you redeem me through my suffering for you? And God in this passage calls you out to the carpet too because he says, no, no, no. I don't redeem you because of your suffering. Someone has already suffered for you. The first thing you learn from Psalm 6 is that you can expect tears. They are an ordinary part of life. They are an ordinary part of the Christian life. And friends, listen. Children, listen. Some of you are soon to go off to college. Some of you are in college. And you've left your parents and you're claiming your faith for your own. And you're wondering with all these emotions that you feel, is this normal? The Psalms reassures you that it is. And that God can handle every bit of your emotional swings. Because Jesus himself sang these songs. 
These are his songs that he sings. So we shouldn't indulge our tears, and we shouldn't also stifle them. Those are both overcorrections. The gospel offers us, the psalm offers us a third way. What is it? Expect tears, too. You do what David does, and you pray your tears. You pray them. Look at verses 1 to 5. The whole thing is a prayer. It says, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Discipline me not in your wrath. Be gracious to me, for I am languishing. I am flailing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. You know, the word languishing there is this interesting Hebrew word that just means to flail or to be rudderless. You know what it's like when you go to church for a while or you're, you're, everything else seems to be going great. Your kids are doing great. Your spouse is doing great. There's relatively little stress in your life, but there's just a sense on some days and you're just sad. There's just a heaviness. You know what theologians call that term? They call it, technical term, spiritual blah. <laughs> That's the term, and you know what I'm talking about. You just kind of feel blah. David here in Psalm 1, in Psalm 6, verse 1, just says, Lord, I don't know if there's a specific sin I should be repenting of. He doesn't name a specific sin. This psalm is incredibly generic. You can't tell from the psalm if he's running from Absalom. You can't tell if he's running from Saul. You can't tell if somebody, it's a turncoat situation where a general has turned his back on David. There's a famine in the kingdom. We don't know exactly why David wrote this psalm. It's just, that's the beauty of the psalm. It's like, it has no context. Even the later Jewish scribes that wrote the verse that you see at the very top, which is not really a verse, the heading, where it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. They just said, listen, this is a song for someone to lead with a string instrument for the worship of God's people. It gives you nothing about geography, no context clues to tell you when this happened in David's life, which is so refreshing to me because this is like a psalm of spiritual love. And when you have those times, what do you do? You pray your tears. Eugene Peterson, one commentator, wrote, Tears are a biological gift from God. They are a means for expressing emotional and spiritual experience, but it is hard to know what to do with them. If we indulge our tears, we cultivate self-pity. If we suppress our tears, we lose touch with our feelings. But if we pray our tears, we enter into the sadness that integrates our sorrows with our Lord's sorrows, and we discover both the source of and the relief from our sadness. In other words, if we repress our tears, we may miss an opportunity to plumb our hearts in our workings, our deepest motivations. But if we just ventilate or vent out our emotions, we may also miss an opportunity to drive those emotions, to drive to see our sinful sense of self-pity and to grow more and more in self-awareness. But in praying our sorrows, in our sorrow, about our sorrow, we get perspective on our situation. It helps us overcome our idolatrous, often inconsolable emotions while still expressing the sadness that is good and necessary to any loving person living in our difficult and our broken world. 
Now, I know this is June, and I know that we are out of school, and I know that it's the summer, and it's an exciting time. And so some of you are here, listen, I didn't sign up for this. I'm new to church. I'm new, new to Trinity. <laughs> but, like, this doesn't sound very encouraging. Oh, but, but wait, like, what about all this talk, Blake, that you speak of about Jesus' love for me and singing over me his joy and his gladness? What about all this talk about how Jesus has adopted me and brought me in? Yes, that's all true, but don't go there too quick. There are at least three things over which Scripture says it is, in fact, wrong to not weep over. Number one, Scripture says that we ought to weep over our sin, which offends God and others. And a lack of tears over our sin shows that we lack a clear and proportional sense of what sin is and what sin means. It's a lack of holiness in us. I know, no, no, well, let's just move past that. See, Jesus is love. No, you can't move past that. If you're going to grow in holiness, you have to be able to see your sin, and you have to weep over that. It is a natural part of repentance. The other thing that Scripture says, it is a sin not to weep over the injustices of the world. This is hard for us. It's incredible. This is a suburban dilemma that's very hard because we live in a very tranquil world. But one of the challenges for us as we grow in our Christian life is to be able to read the newspaper with weeping and to be able to see the Syrian refugee crisis and begin to weep over the fact that thousands of people have been kicked out of their country and have nowhere to go. You begin to weep over the political unrest over much of the world. You begin to weep. It's a good thing to do, lest your weeping or lest your lack of weeping become an infection in your soul and harden your heart. There's a great metaphor for regeneration in the Scripture. It's given to us in Ezekiel 36. It's one of my favorites. It's given in other places too, but especially there. Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will take out your heart of stone, and I will give you what? A heart of flesh. In other words, as you grow in the Christian life, your heart is becoming softer to the needs of the world. It's becoming more aware of the needs, not... not not only of your needs, but of other people's needs, those who are different from you. You should weep over your sin. You should weep over the injustices of the world. The third thing Scripture says is you ought to weep over your own losses and disappointments. It's a good thing to weep over your losses and disappointments. When you lose a loved one, yes, you should weep. It's a good thing. If you don't take time to weep over your losses and your disappointments then you're probably someone who doesn't really want to know their own heart. Listen, maybe we have too little a sense of the reality of God to admit how devastated we are by sin. Maybe we need to think of ourselves as extremely strong and unflappable. Maybe we simply cannot bear to admit how fragile we are. These all lack humility, and trust that the gospel calls us to. David weeps over all these things. He weeps over his guilt in verse 1. Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Don't be angry with me, but rebuke me. He doesn't exactly know what in this context he's repenting of, but he knows he needs to repent. Lord, show yourself to me through rebuke. Open my eyes to my need for you as I weep on my bed of tears, in my trail of tears. Then he says in verses 2 or 3, Lord, he says, I weep over my own loss and pain. 
In verses 7 and 8, he says, Lord, I weep over the injustices of the evildoers. Lord, all of these, all of these things, Lord, I weep over, and we should too. If you don't stop to weep over the nature of your sin, you will become less self-aware of your need for the grace of God. If you don't stop to weep over the brokenness of the world, your heart will harden to the needs of your neighbor. If you don't stop to weep, weeping is kind of like fertilizer to your soul. If you don't stop to weep over the losses and the disappointments that you've had, not just losing loved ones, but the real disappointments that your life is not what you thought it would be today, then you miss an opportunity to know the inner motivations and workings of your heart. And here David gives us all three. He weeps for his sin in verse 1. He weeps over the injustices of the world in verses 7 and 8. He weeps over his own loss in verses 2 and 3. David Brainerd was a great missionary to the Delaware Indians in New Jersey. He was a fantastic young preacher. He died at age 29 very, very early in 1747. David Brainerd left to us a journal. And this journal has been an incredible encouragement to many people ever since. And on this journal, one day, just after Christmas, in 1742, uh, he writes an entry that says, I had the sweet, melting sense of divine things. He's on a spiritual high. Oh, the pure spirituality of religion of Jesus Christ. Oh, the sweetness, the tenderness that I felt in my soul. If I ever felt the temper of Christ, I had some sense of it now. Blessed be my God. I have seldom enjoyed a more comfortable and profitable day than this. Oh, that I could spend all my time for God. It, so it sounds like he just got back from summer camp, doesn't he? And then less than two weeks later, only two entries later in his journal, David Brainerd, before he's going to preach the gospel, says this, from the heights of heavenly bliss to the depths of depression, my spiritual conflicts today, he wrote, were unspeakably dreadful, heavier than the mountains and overflowing floods. Two weeks. I seemed enclosed, as it were, in hell itself. I was deprived of all sense of God, even of the being of God. He's fixing to go preach. This is not a good place to be. And it was misery. I had no awful apprehensions of God as angry. This was distress, the nearest akin to the damned torments that I ever endured. This taught me the absolute dependence of a creature upon a creator. This dark night... This day is teaching me the absolute dependence of a, a creator, creature on a creator. For every crumb of happiness it enjoys. Oh, I feel that if there were no God, though I might live forever here and enjoy not only this world, but all other worlds, I should be 10,000 times more miserable than a toad. Do you see what happened as he prayed his tears? He entered into this period of depression, and he wrote about it in his journal. And then something in the middle of that entry turned, didn't it? It turned. In the midst of coming to grips with his own sorrow, he realized his utter dependence as a creature upon his creator. And he said, hypothetically, if God didn't exist, and I could inherit this entire world, and not only this world, but all the other worlds, if they existed, I would be more miserable than a toad comparing to knowing the one for whom I was made. In praying his tears, in this case, in this test case of Brainerd journaling his prayers, 
he came to recognize his hope. There's a deep sense of self-awareness that comes when you begin to be honest about your tears. You can expect them, and then you pray them. And you go to your Savior, and you pray them, and you cry them out to him. David builds his case on the attribute that God never changes. God's aseity. That God will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that it is God's covenantal love that David depends on. It says in verse 4, Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. For, save me for the sake of your chesed love. In Hebrew, your steadfast, loyal love. This is not a commitment. This is a covenantal, faithful love that your Savior has to you no matter where you go. And he brings you back. He loves you. So you should expect tears, and you should pray your tears. So how do you do this? Well, verses 8 and 10 show us. Look at verses 8 and 10. If you're going to be able to pray your tears, you have to first see that you invest them. You invest your tears. How do you invest your tears? Well, let's look at what David does. He says in verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Verses 8 to 10 show us the source of David's confidence. They tell us to rest in God's presence and to wait on his favor. They show David the source of his confidence. This is a broken man. Listen, in verses 6 and 7, he is on his couch weeping. He is moaning all day long. And then yet in verse 8, he says, Depart from me, all you workers. Something has happened to him. What has happened? In the context of praying his prayers, just like something he recognized as a creature beneath the Creator, that it is only the Creator's work for him. It is only Jesus' work for him that allows him to be able to look not away from his trials or his struggles and not to give in to them, but to stand to them face to face and boldly say, depart from me, you workers of evil. You know why? Why? Not because I've had a quiet time this morning, not because I've listened to 17 podcasts this week, for one reason only, that in the throne room of God, he has heard my prayer. In the temple, in the Old Testament, it was marked off for certain people. In the outside, there were room for the Gentiles. In the inside, there were room for the Jews. In the innermost sanctum, at the mercy seat, there were room for the priests in the center place of that mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, there was room for one, the high priest who could go in only once a year. And here, David is saying, I am in the presence of God. He has heard my prayer. Does David have his prayer answered in this psalm? Does David find out the reason why he's languishing and struggling? No, it doesn't tell you, which shouldn't frustrate you. It should be a great encouragement to you. Sometimes God doesn't just tell you exactly why you feel so dark, but he says, come to me. One commentator, Derek Kidner, said of the psalm that David never receives an answer to his prayer, but what he does receive is an answering touch, that the Lord reminds David that you no longer 
have to worry about coming to me. I am with you. I dwell with God's people. And if David, King David in the Old Testament, received an answering touch, you know when you invest things, like an investment, you study the investments, you look at the market, you read it, and you don't just invest your money without thinking about where you're investing your money. It's the same with your tears. You don't just weep tears to weep tears. No, you invest them into something. Either you're going to repress them or you're going to vent them. Perhaps both can become very ungodly. God calls you to pray them, to drive your tears in this third way, to invest them as it were. David received an answering touch, just a touch. He knew God heard his prayer. But we have an answering triumph on this side of the cross, friends. We don't just get an answering touch. Jesus entered the Holy of Holies for us. Jesus was the one that died our death. Jesus was the one that says, you should invest your tears in me. Why? Because no other God in the world, no other God in the world is a God of sorrows. But Isaiah says of your Lord that when you invest your tears, you do so by looking at the cross. You look at the cross because Jesus was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. Jesus, what does the Bible say of Jesus? One of the things that it says over and over and over, like a drumbeat in the chorus line of Scripture, this is Jesus was a man of tears. He wept over his friend Lazarus. He wept at the garden. He wept so much he sweat drops of blood. And Jesus on that cross, how do you invest your tears? You look to the cross. Because there Jesus, the man of sorrows, cries your tears. Yes, of course they were his. He was human, fully human in every way. And yet also he was fully God. And those tears are your tears. He is crying your tears with you. And he died your death that you deserved. That's how you invest your tears. The perspective gives you, the prospectus gives you of this investment infinite return. Where else are you going to take them? Please don't repress them. And please don't vent them in self-pity. Take them the third way. Take them to the gospel. Expect your tears. Pray your tears. Invest your tears. Look to the cross. The mechanism of investment for Christians means not just punching numbers on your iPhone to send digital commodities to your account. It means raising your eyes to see the crucified Savior on that cross. It means looking at Christ. Because when you were there in the crowd and Jesus was weeping for you, you must be able to weep tears because when the opportunity came to release him, you beat him and you spit on him and you put him on that cross and he weeps those tears for you. And he knows what it's like to live in a broken world. He knows what it's like to live in oppression. He knows what it's like to long for glory. The infinite bliss that he had with his father, he gave up so that you might be able. David, King David, got an answering touch, the commentators say. But you, Christian, get an answering triumph. And Jesus cries your tears, and he dies your death for you. 
And the way that we are to take our tears in the Psalms, I told you this was an emotional sermon, it's an emotional book. The way that you are to take your tears in the Psalms is you are to expect them, you are to pray them, and you are to what? Are you with me? Are you listening? You are to invest them. That's the mechanism of faith in the midst of your sorrow. Eugene Peterson says, left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing or to the part of God we manage to understand. But what is critical is that we speak to the God who speaks to us. And to everything he speaks to us, the Psalms train us in this conversation. Athanasius in the early church said, the other scriptures speak to us, but the Psalms speak for us. Cry out, Psalm 6. Make it your prayer. Don't just make it your own. Don't just read it through the lens of King David, but read it through the lens of your Savior crying out this prayer for you on the cross when he cried your tears and it drove him to his death. And then, like David, look up with hope at that cross because three days later, Jesus rose victorious as a foreshadowing of the time when he will come and he will conquer all of your enemies and mine, the greatest of which are sin and death. Be an amazing day when we are in glory with him forever. But until then, we can approach his throne with confidence and we can take our tears to him in repentance, in brokenness, in joy. As the old hymn says, Come, you disconsolate, wherever you languish, come to the mercy seat and fervently kneel. Here bring your wounded hearts and here tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Joy of the desolate, light of the struggling, hope of the penitent, fadeless and pure. Here speaks the comforter tenderly saying, Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. Here see the bread of life, see the water flowing. From the throne of God, pure from above, come to the feast of love, come ever knowing. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't remove. This is our prayer as God's people who don't ignore our sorrows, who don't tamp them down, who don't vent them into self-pity, but drive them to the gospel in the third way. Pray your tears, invest your tears because Jesus knows them and is with you. Do you believe this? Let's run to him in faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will take our tears and that you will take our emotions and that you will continue to contour them to the gospel and that you help us to avoid both self-pity, which we have a tendency to run to, and tamping down our emotions because many of us were raised in homes where we couldn't cry. Help us to drive our tears to prayer. And in our praying, Lord, help us to invest them into the cross to know that one day you will wipe every tear from our eye and one day you will remove all that has gone so horribly wrong with the world. This is our faith. We believe this. We believe it as our worldview. We believe it as our confession. Oh, Lord Christ, we are your people. Shape us, we pray in your name. Amen.